Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Welcome back, friends. Today, I want to take what we've learned about the importance of cultural historical context and apply it to a specific passage of scripture that is probably very familiar to you. I'm talking about John 4 and the conversation that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, I like to keep these segments short, so I'm not going to read the passage. If it's unfamiliar to you, I highly recommend you hit pause and give it a quick read or listen. Now, I'm going to start by listing a few things that I have heard about this woman and literally every sermon or teaching on this passage. Now, I've been going to church and hearing sermons and Bible studies for my entire 42 years of life. So when I say literally every sermon and teaching, I'm talking about a lot of sermons and teachings. I would estimate, I don't know, 30 to 50 on this particular passage, the book of John is preached a lot. Um, so anyway, I this this comes from a a great deal of experience. All right, so here's the list. The Samaritan woman had somehow ruined five marriages and was currently shacking up with a man she wasn't married to. Now, no one in my Southern Baptist church ever used phrases like shacking up, but that was the definite implication. Hence, the woman in John 4 was an immoral woman willfully living in sexual sin. Her terrible choices made her an outcast in her community, which is why she was at the well at the hottest part of the day when no one else would have been there. Jesus's top priority was to expose the Samaritan woman's sin. The woman downplays her sin by trying to change the subject, trying to veer the conversation away from her personal life to the longstanding debate of where temple worship should take place. All right, so that's my list of things that I have heard about this woman over and over and over. And I'm assuming that if I could see you, you are shaking your head. Yes, me too. That's what you've always heard as well. Now, New Testament scholar Karen Reeder recently published a book that challenges these assumptions. The book is called The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2. Now, in the book, Dr. Reader traces the history of interpretation of John 4 from the early church fathers to modern day, 99% of which presents the Samaritan woman as a sexual sinner, often to a very severe degree. In the second part of the book, she works with primary sources to reconstruct the cultural and historical context of a woman like this woman we meet in John chapter 4. In short, her book shows us the massive and profoundly harmful interpretive errors that have resulted from pastors and teachers mapping their own context and cultural assumptions onto this woman's story. And I'll be the first to admit that I have done this. I have done this on many occasions as I have taught through this passage or written about this passage. So Reader's book was extremely helpful and humbling 
for me. All right, so here are some really significant facts about marriage in the first century Roman Empire that primary sources reveal. And I'm taking these, these are direct quotations from Reader's Book, um, specifically from pages 148 to 149. First, marriage in the first century had two primary purposes. It functioned to ally two households for their mutual economic, social, and political advantage, and it provided a means for the birth of legitimate children. So marriage was not fundamentally emotional or romantic. In the first century, marriage was not about relationship. It was not even about the two people that were married, per se. Marriage was instead about family, community, and economy. Now, Reader does clarify that genuine affection did exist in marriages in the first century, but it developed after the marriage, uh, not before. All right, second, women did have legal rights in the first century, but... These rights were limited by social and cultural expectations of a father's authority over even adult daughters and of daughters' obedience to their fathers. So you couldn't just get a divorce because you wanted a divorce. Like there's a big family dynamic at play. Um, Reader also writes that finances, housing, and children also constricted women's ability to refuse a marriage, to divorce, or to remain unmarried following the end of a marriage. This context undermines the characterization of the Samaritan woman as a sexual sinner. Instead of a woman looking for love in all the wrong places, we have a woman who was socialized into the expectation that she would marry for the good of her family and community. Now, even taking that into account, it's still highly unusual for a woman in her context to have so many marital relationships. So here are the possible explanations for all of these marriages in her current situation that Reader offers in light of the historical reconstruction and examination of primary sources that she's done. All right, so I'm quoting again from Reader here. First, she may not have cohabitated with each husband. In Matthew 1, 18 through 19, Joseph wants to divorce his fiance Mary before their marriage was completed. And the rabbis recognized that betrothals could end with divorce or death before the marriage even began. Second, the woman probably married for the first time between ages 12 and 15 to a man at least 10 years older than herself, probably more than 10 years older than herself. So her husband or husbands could have died due to age, injury, or disease. Back then, medical care was not like it is today. Third, remarriage following the death of a spouse or divorce was very common across the Roman Empire. Depending on a woman's family circumstances, she may have needed to remarry for her own thriving to advance her family's financial, social, or political standing or for the social value of a shared life. Finally, cohabitation was an acceptable alternative to formal contractual marriage in the Roman Empire. Perhaps the woman could not formally marry her sixth man due to the differences in their status or identity. Perhaps the man was a Roman citizen or soldier stationed in Sychar as part of the imperial administration. Perhaps he was a freed slave or from a priestly family. 
an alliance with a man like this, even though she couldn't contractually marry him, it could have benefited her family and community with access to economic and political resources they otherwise wouldn't have had. Or perhaps the woman's current man already had heirs and he did not want to split the property with additional children from the relationship. About divorce, Dr. Reeder offers these really helpful observations. She says some of the woman's marriages may have ended in divorce for a variety of reasons. Abuse, incompatibility, a more advantageous match for either the woman's family or her husband's. Adultery was one reason for divorce among Romans or Jews. But there is no reason to assume the Samaritan woman was divorced by her husband for adultery. Rather, the fact of her remarriages suggests that she was not suspected or convicted of adultery. Now, I'd like to add to that the commonly proposed idea that the woman came to the well at noon because she was an outcast has absolutely no evidence in the text. In fact, when the woman returns to her village to tell the people about Jesus, they believed her. Not only that, they left their town and followed her back to Jesus so that they could hear for themselves. She is clearly not the town whore. She is clearly not an outcast. She is respected. Furthermore, if you read John 4 in the context of the whole gospel, if you're familiar with how John writes, if you're familiar with the themes that he is weaving throughout his narrative, what you see is that John is constantly playing with the concept of light and darkness throughout. So Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus in chapter three takes place at night. That conversation doesn't end too well. Nicodemus, the well-educated, hoity-toity, fancy Pharisee, ends up confused. Then there's a discourse that includes a note about darkness and light, followed by a scene change. There we have Jesus at a well in Samaria at the brightest time of day. And this conversation at the brightest time of day proceeds and ends way differently than the one he had with Nicodemus. There's understanding and conversion. This woman and many in her village choose light while the religious leaders like Nicodemus prefer darkness. This woman's going to the well at noon has nothing to do with her reputation, but everything to do with this bigger theme of light and darkness that John is weaving throughout his narrative. We are never, ever, ever, ever supposed to study John 4 in isolation of John 3 and the rest of the gospel. All right, so here's Reader's conclusion about the woman's marital situation. She writes, If we understand marriage in the first century Roman Empire as a business arrangement rather than a romantic endeavor, then the woman's five marriages become significantly less scandalous. If we remember that cohabitation was a culturally acceptable alternative to a contracted marriage, then her current situation becomes a practical solution rather than an indication of sexual sin. 
Reader also notes that Jesus did not accuse the woman of sexual sin. The reason this is significant is the fact that he did accuse others of sin throughout the Gospel of John. So in contrast to many other passages in the Gospel, neither sin nor forgiveness is mentioned anywhere in John 4, 4 through 42. So in to interpret the reference to the woman's marital history as a condemnation of sin is highly problematic. This story is about something else altogether. What it ends up being about is the theological conversation that Jesus has with the woman about worship. She doesn't selfishly change the subject in verse 19. She actually directs the conversation exactly where Jesus would have wanted it to go. This whole scene is about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth as the savior of the whole world, Samaritans included. She comes to see that he is indeed the Messiah, and then she becomes the first evangelist in her community, and people in her village come to see that he is the Messiah. And this, by the way, is why Jesus brings up her past. He's not first and foremost trying to expose her sin, as is often taught. Jesus brings up her past because he wants her to see that he is no ordinary man. It's much like what he does in John chapter 1 with Nathaniel. He points out something about Nathaniel's past that Jesus shouldn't have known, and it makes Nathaniel, it like opens his eyes to the fact that, whoa, this, this, is, not, this is not just any man, right? So that's what's happening in John 4 as well. Jesus wants her to see that he is no ordinary man. He's even more than a prophet, which is her first conclusion, right? So he tells her about her past. She says, oh, you must be a prophet. And he's like, oh, actually, I'm way more than a prophet. That is the point of this whole thing. Now, I won't get into the details here, but John is also riffing off an Old Testament well-meeting pattern. So wells show up uh, quite a few times in the Old Testament in relation to important biblical patriarchs meeting their spouses, their brides. And, and so John is definitely playing with that here. Um, in the show notes, I'll post an article about that if you want to explore that further. Now, Reader's Book talks a lot about why there's a longstanding tradition within Christian interpretation to see women as sexual sinners. The woman in John 4 is unfortunately not the only victim of this impulse. Reader also spends a decent amount of time in her book connecting the women as sexual sinners lens to modern day conceptions of women within Christianity that create environments where abuse can flourish. Now, Reader is obviously writing from an egalitarian perspective. Whether you agree with her conclusions or not, I have to say I absolutely cannot recommend this book enough. I think if you are ever going to teach John chapter four, I don't care if you're teaching babies or grownups or anybody in between. Um, this book is, is definitely worth your time. 
Now, what I want us to take away from this today is that, as I've said before, yes, context is king, but literary context is not enough. We can't just know what all the words mean in Greek. We can't just outline the literary flow of the passage. We can't just analyze the grammar uh, or identify the genre and call it a day. We have to do the work or find the scholars who are doing the work of getting into the primary sources and reconstructing to the best of our ability the cultural and historical context of that particular passage. It is so, so important. And I think this is a great place to say that if you're ever listening to a sermon uh, or a a message um, and your gut is telling you that something's off, it just, you're just not seeing that in the passage. It's just not connecting to what you know. Chase that suspicion down engage in some critical thinking. Now, don't be all arrogant and angry about it. Certainly assume the best about the person who is preaching or teaching, but never assume that just because they hold a title or quote a bunch of old dead theologians, that they have done the work necessary to understand the passage in its own context. Also keep in mind that even pastors who have a high view of women have unfortunately been heavily impacted by a long history of biblical interpretation that has a very low view of women, which makes our insights as women really valuable. So stay humble and kind and gracious. Uh, Keep in mind that your pastor, whoever's teaching that Bible study, is probably doing the very best they can with the time that they have Chances are they don't have any malicious intent behind um, the the teaching that you think is suspect. So approach it that way. Approach it with a, a, a great deal of humility, but never be afraid to speak up about that gut feeling that something's off or to speak up about something that you have read, like Reader's Book, that challenges the longstanding acceptable interpretation of a passage. And let me just remind you, and I should probably do a whole episode on this, but like whoever your favorite old dead theologians are, whether it's some of the early church fathers or whether it's John Calvin or Luther, maybe you love Wesley, I don't know, whoever they are, right? Their writings are so valuable. Their writings are such a gift to the church. But let me tell you something. Their writings are not the original context of the Bible. So just because Calvin said it, or Tertullian said it, or Athanasius said it, or Luther said it, or I don't know, fill in the blank. Just because they said it, listen, they are responding to things in their own, in their own cultural context that have shaped their view of scripture, just like we do. They're mapping their stuff onto the text of the Bible just like we are. And so we need to go back further. It's, it's hard, um, but it's important. It's a really important work because just like this passage has demonstrated today, it has a big impact on how we see the world. 
how we see an entire gender is shaped by how we interpret passages like this. So anyway, press on, press on. Let's press on in our attempt to uh, to get those uh, historically, culturally accurate resources. Um, that's it for today. Lord willing, I'll see you back here next week for another episode of Hermeneutics Tuesday. Bye, friends. <laughs>